You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. But hey, good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, Happy New Year tomorrow for you guys. And we're going to continue, as James alluded to, just continuing our, our time in Hebrews. Um, so if, if I don't know you, I would love to get to know you. My name is James. I'm on staff here at the church. Uh, it's a pleasure to move the ball forward as we study uh, the book of Hebrews. Well, in our house, Friday night uh, is movie night in our house. Friday night is movie night. Get out the popcorn, right? And recently, Lucy, my oldest child, asked, she said, Dad, why does every movie always have a bad person doing bad things? Why can't there just be movies of good people doing good things? That's an interesting question, isn't it? And if you think about it, it's actually a question that cuts directly into the type of stories that we as a human race choose to write and tell. And Lucy's right. The narrative arc of of most stories told in some way or some fashion is, is is of a kingdom. Is of, is of a kingdom, but then is overrun by enemies, yet then is reclaimed somehow by an unsuspecting heir of failed forefathers. We have lots of examples, right? We can think of it. We can think of Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Frozen. I have lots of kids. Or we could take the ancient story of the Odyssey. I know most. Many of us have heard of it, and somewhere in my educational journey, I read it, had to refresh myself, but consider the Odyssey. The Odyssey is one of our oldest pieces of literature. It was believed to have been written uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ. So in in Bible timeline, it would be the, the exact time of Isaiah the prophet. And so we think of the prophet Isaiah, right, and we think, wow, that's an That's an old dude, right? Well, so is the story of the Odyssey. It's from a long time ago. And just a heads up, I'm going to give some spoilers to the story of the Odyssey. But I'm not overly concerned, because if you haven't read it yet, you've had 2,000 years, so you probably won't. But the Odyssey is about a king named Odysseus who's attempting to return home uh, after war. And Odessa's journey, it should have taken just weeks to get back home after this war. But instead of weeks, it turns into ten years of all sorts of trials and tribulations. But finally, after a decade of struggle, Odessa returns home only to discover that his kingdom and his home have been laid siege by just worthless men trying to take over his kingdom and home. And so rather than declaring himself as the rightful king... And the rightful husband, Odessus, disguises himself as a beggar and keeping his identity a secret. And his wife, Penelope, in time, devises this test. A test that says she, she will marry any man able to string Odessus' bow and any man who's able to shoot an arrow through, like a dozen lined up axes to shoot an arrow through that. As the story goes, every potential suitor, every person who attempts, fails. But Odessa, the beggar, succeeds. As only he is able to accomplish what the test required. 
And it's Odessa who then reveals his true identity as the true husband of Penelope and the true king of the kingdom. And as the story ends, all those worthless men who'd committed treason are put to death. And Odessa reclaims his throne and his family. You see, what's interesting here is the, the, the Odyssey, as ancient of a story as really we have, 700 years before Jesus, thousands of years old, is nothing more than the same story we're retelling today of a lost kingdom overrun by enemies yet reclaimed by an unsuspecting Lord. Which makes me wonder, why are we as a human race delighted by and captivated with and taken in by these sort of stories? Why are these the stories that for generations we've been telling around campfires and written in our books and portrayed on the movies? Why is this the same story we're retelling over and over again, albeit a different cast of characters, but on every continent, across every language, across every century of humankind? Why are these the stories we choose to tell? Well, I invite you to pick up a Bible or turn on your Bible and turn to chapter 2 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, it's near the end of your Bible. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And as we continue today in Hebrews, our, our passage answers why this story of kingdom lost and kingdom reclaimed is the story that has captured humankind throughout time. The passage is going to show that this story, this story that's captivated us is our story, that this is our story, that our story is a story of belonging to a lost kingdom, that, that our story is a story of being overrun by an enemy, that our story is a story of being reclaimed by an unsuspecting Lord who alone has delivered us from our enemy and is restoring the lost kingdom to glory. We've been retelling this story for centuries around campfires and in books and on movie screens because it's the story that's the truth for all of us, whether we know it or not. This is our story. So as we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, here's our plan. One, I want to take a brisk walk. It's cold outside, so we're going to take a brisk walk through this text together. And we're going to see how this passage connects to the larger teaching of Hebrews. And secondly, we're going to allow this passage, which wonderfully tells our story, the truth of our lives, which is really the true story of the whole world, the story of God, we're going to allow this passage to shape how we talk and how we walk. So let's pray as we get started. Father God, we, we come to you in this moment and ask that you would, by the power of your spirit and word, put us to life to the things that you have for us in your living, eternal word. We want to hear from you this morning. So Lord, we ask for your help. Would you put your word to life in us, we pray. Amen. Okay, you got your coat on, your scarf? We're going for a walk. You ready? 
But and as and as you're doing that, as you're putting your scarf on, remember where we've been in Hebrews. Remember where we are in Hebrews. We've just started chapter 2. In our passage, verses 5 through 9, it comes on the heels of verses 1 through 4, which is the first of what will be five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There's five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And this is the first one in verses 1 through 4, which is a warning for the Christian to pay careful attention to the message of Jesus, that the Christian is not to drift from what is true, the true message of Jesus. But why? Why should Christians not drift from Jesus' message? Well, we got to go for a brisk walk, and we'll see in our text how it answers that. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So, so once more, the author returns to restate the case already made in chapter 1, that Jesus is better than angels. So here we go again. We're talking about angels But notice here in chapter 2 that Jesus is better than angels. Uh, It's different than what the author stated back in chapter 1. Jesus is better than angels here in verse 5 because God the Father has subjected all things of the world to come, not to angels, but we'll discover to Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 8, the author quotes from Psalm 8 saying, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And we'll see how the author actually applies this psalm to the person of Jesus. And then by doing so, we see as the author shows us that the kingdom reign or rule of Jesus is not just as God, like in his deity, but this kingdom reign is as also in the perfect and triumphant man, meaning the God-man. You see, Adam and all of Adam's sons and daughters, because of their sin, failed in their God-given dominion to rule God's creation, as it says here in Psalm 8, as we're told, That only the God-man, not angels, only the God-man, Jesus, is able to reclaim what humanity lost. And only Jesus is able to restore humanity's rule over God's creation. We continue there in verse 8. And at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels... Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so what we see here, the author is helping us see, is that Jesus made our weak and frail human condition his condition. That our rightful and imminent death became his death. And by doing so, Jesus reclaimed the glorious purpose and destiny God had given to all mankind as quoted in Psalm 8, doing, right, what no angel could have done. Doing what no angel could have done. Jesus is better than angels. And, And in short, we could just sum it up by saying Jesus stepped down so that we could step up, right? Jesus stepped down so we could step up. It was a short walk. It was brisk. It was cold. But I hope it's given you just a little breath of fresh air as it has me and just feel this like 
tug of this most wonderful and true story, a story that's captivated humans for centuries, a story of a kingdom lost and a kingdom reclaimed, a story the author has warned us in verses 1 through 4, don't depart or drift from the truth of this story. So what do we do with this story, the story of God? I want to do two things. I, I, want, to, I want the story to tell us how to, how to tell it and then how to live it. How do we tell this story and how do we live it? So how do we tell the story of God? I know I've talked to many of you and a lot of you share this desire to, 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 to tell and declare this story of Jesus to your neighbors, to your family. But I also hear in that same breath often, I, I, honestly, I'm not sure what I would say. I'm not sure how I would actually tell the story of God. Well, well, let's lean into this passage. Write some things down because this passage actually gives us language to help us articulate in a beautiful, winsome way the story of God. And we can think as we move through this passage a little bit more deeply, deeply, the story of God can be told really in four like broad movements or chapters. Four movements. We're going to go through it together. But movement one, creation. Movement one, creation. That the story of God does not begin with us, which sometimes we fail to remember. The story of God does not begin with us. The story of God begins with God. In the beginning, God which informs us that God is the source of everything and everyone that we see and touch and taste and feel. God's the source. And in God's plan for this world, as our creator king, he's made you and I as his creature, kings and creature queens, to rule over all that he has made. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And understanding this movement of number one, creation, is found there in verses 6 and 7 as the author quotes from Psalm 8. And I encourage you to jot down Psalm 8 and to read this as you go home uh, today or this week. But there's two basic points to Psalm 8 that the author makes clear. Number one is when you consider, written in this psalm, the massive, cosmic, unimaginable, creative glory and power of God, human beings shrink down to just insignificant dust particles by comparison. Which is why in verse 6, what is man that you are mindful of him? But number two, given this reality of humankind, shockingly, God hands the keys of his kingdom to humankind to reign over, to rule over his creation. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. David, who's the author of this psalm, Psalm 8, is echoing language found in Genesis chapter 1, language that we probably know, right? In verses 27 and 28, that God created man in his own image, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I love how one pastor says it like this. He says, do you know why people build cities and roads and schools and squirrels don't? 
Why people bore mines and dig up quartz and make silicone from it and turn that silicone into microchips that power phones and put satellites into space so we can send signals from the phone to space and back again. Why we do that, but raccoons, dolphins, and orangutans don't? It's because God created, it's because we were created by God with a fundamentally different design and purpose. Don't you love that? Movement one, creation. The true story of the world begins with God's creation, really of a perfect paradise, a a theater of God's glory. And amazingly, you and I, humankind, are given really a lead role in this play. Created as God's image bearers to rule and reflect the goodness of God's glory. Movement one, creation, we see it. But then movement two, rebellion. Movement two, rebellion. Sadly, rather than choosing to rule in God's goodness for God's glory, humankind deliberately withdraws allegiance to our creator king and seeks autonomy and self-glory, believing that on the other side of that quest, we'd find something far better than anything God could generate for us. But instead of finding better, humankind only finds frustration and sorrow and loss, the direct consequences of our sinful rebellion to our creator king. And in that rebellion, the kingdom is lost. And rather than humanity ruling over creation, we find that creation begins to rule over humanity. But not only is the kingdom lost, As persons convicted of treason, you and I, humanity, stand sentenced to death. There's a death sentence over our heads. And so from the garden scene on, there's two stories that begin to unfold throughout Scripture. One is the story of Jesus who comes to reclaim what we've lost. And secondly is a story of humankind foolishly continuing to secure autonomy and self-glory apart from God. You see, sin doesn't remove our God-given creational urge to, to cultivate and to rule and to build. Sin simply twists it inward into selfish gain and purpose. We discover that, yeah, you can turn quartz mine from God's good, created world and turn them into microchips. We discover that. But we use those microchips not for God's glory and our neighbor's good, but for our selfish greed. And we choose to make things like pornography. We go and build cities with the ingenuity of our God-created mind that he's created us with. But we fill these cities not with God's righteousness and God's goodness for all to flourish. But we fill it with gang violence and abortion clinics and political corruption. All sorts of evils. All of which leads the author of Hebrews to say there in verse 8, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You see, we're caught. In the midst of two stories, two stories unfolding at the same time. On one hand, we see most clearly 
and feel most acutely uh, this, this story of humanity departing from the things of God and plunging further into darkness and pain and sorrow caused by the foolishness of self-seeking humans. It's all around us. But just because that story is most acutely felt does not mean that the other story of Jesus reclaiming, reclaiming dominion is not true. Both can be true. Both can be happening. So in movement one, we have creation, uh, humankind created to rule for God's glory. Movement two, we have rebellion of humankind choosing to rebel against God's goodness and losing the kingdom. And in movement three, we have redemption. Movement three, redemption. Ever since Adam's folly at the beginning of time, humankind throughout Scripture sought a better Adam, a better son or daughter who's able to reclaim the kingdom that we lost Yet throughout history, no man, no woman, no daughter or son of Adam is able to deliver humanity from the shackles of sin nor vanish the evil consequences of our choices of frustration and conflict and disease and death. And I was reminded of a fascinating passage in Revelation chapter 5. Turn there if you can. It'll be on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 5. This is John seeing a vision. He says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So I know there's a lot of uh, perhaps questions right here, but what what is the scroll? Why is John weeping that nobody can open it? Well, in short, this scroll, when open, really represents what would be the redemption of everything lost and humanity's failed rule over God's kingdom. The opening of the scroll would bring about redemption And so this text is encountering this question of like, will God's kingdom be lost forever? That's the tension, that's the sorrow, that's the tears of John. And we get to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals what we see here it's weep no more john weep no more for the kingdom will not be lost forever there is one jesus who can and who will open the scroll who can and who will reclaim the kingdom we lost and if we think back to the story of odessus a story written more than 700 years prior to the coming of jesus we see how that story is buried so deep within our humanity. Odessus won his house and kingdom back by disguising himself as a beggar and ultimately doing what no other could do. 
He strung the bow none could string and made the shot that none could make. How does Jesus reclaim his kingdom? Though he's God, he comes as a beggar. He takes on our human flesh. Though a man, Jesus is able to open the scroll that no one can, taking upon himself what no human could, our death and our sentence. Which is exactly what the author says as we turn back to Hebrews in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, God becoming man, or God as man, who's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so we see that the God who created, who made the heavens, he stoops out of those heavens to become like us, frail and weak, that he might reclaim and deliver us from our grave. Movement one, humankind created to rule. Movement two, rebellion. Humankind rebels against God's goodness. The kingdom is lost. Movement three, redemption. Jesus, the triumphant God-man, frees humanity from their bondage of sin and death. But there's a fourth movement, a movement of restoration. Restoration. God's story, the, the true story of the whole world, ends the way it begins. And again, we flip to the, the back of our Bibles, to Revelation chapter 21. A familiar passage perhaps to some, but hear these words of a description of what is to come. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, Then I saw, John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the seas was no more. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I hear this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The coming kingdom is a world of perfection. No more tears or sorrow or suffering. But there's more. If we flip back to Revelation chapter 5, if we flip back to Revelation chapter 5, When John sees the scroll opened, remember the scroll? When the scroll is opened in Revelation chapter 5, the the heavens rejoice and they sing in verses 9 and 10. They sing this song, the heavens, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, check this out, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall what? And they shall reign on the earth. And they shall reign on the earth. 
Who shall reign? The very ones who deliberately rebelled against God. The very ones who committed treason against God. The very ones who handed the keys of God's kingdom over to the enemy, thereby requiring Jesus' very life to, to reclaim it, to get it back. All those people are not only rescued from our death sentence, they're also reinstated as creature kings and creature queens over God's kingdom, which, my friend, if your faith is in Christ, is you and I. That's wild, isn't it? We commit treason, yet we're invited back into the kingdom as rulers. I love this because it exemplifies just how radical the cross an empty tomb of Jesus most truly is. That it creates this, establishes this new kingdom on the other side of it. And despite our own acts of treason, we are in it. Movement one, creation. Humankind created to rule. Movement two, rebellion. Humankind chooses to rebel against God. We lose the kingdom. Movement three, redemption. Jesus, the God-man, frees humanity from death. And fourthly, restoration. Jesus restores his people to the glorious destiny and purpose God intended for all humankind back in creation. Four movements that capture what is the most wonderful and most true story of the world. And I'm convinced that some of you here this morning need to believe that this story is, is your story. That you direly need Jesus as your redeemer for the treason you've committed against your creator, King. I pray you see your need for Jesus today. And for others of us, we need to see that this most wonderful story is not a story that has in time lost its shine or sparkle. We need to see it for what it is. Check this out. In a few verses in Hebrews chapter 2, as we come to verse 16, I'm stealing from Zach, but this is so good. In verse 16, the author will say this, for surely, oh, I got so excited, I lost my spot. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he, God, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You know what this means? That you and I, as human beings, possess something angels, in a sense, are jealous of. Angels, some of them we know, rebelled against God too, just as humanity did. But Jesus doesn't take on angel flesh, does he? He chose Jesus to take on human flesh and deliver humans from our rebellion. Which is why Peter says in his book that angels long to look into the gospel. Angels long to look into the gospel. And and angels, as brilliant as we've been talking about them, as brilliant and as mighty as they are, who in Revelation, they're standing in the very throne room of God, bowing and singing before the very physical presence of God the Father. These great and mighty heavenly beings, Scripture says, long to feel and to know the gospel story that we know today. God has a great love for you and I. For the human race, his image bearers, that he took on our human condition to satisfy our greatest human need. 
four movements. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. And if we can retell God's story in those clear ways, I think it will go a long ways to the people around us. That we capture this most beautiful and most wonderful story. Let's learn to put language to it and to share it. And lastly, as we come to the end, let's allow this story to inform us of how we live this story in our lives today. For if the story of God is the true story of the whole world, if God's story is the true story, then that means that your life and my life is never a life of futility. We never have a life of futility. God's creational creational purpose and destiny is for you and I to, to rule over his kingdom. And I don't mean that like there's some golden throne floating in the heavenly skies and we have a scepter and we look down and chuckle at all these peasants trying to make things work as we rule from our lofty heavens. What I mean is that God created you as his image bearer to live in his kingdom, to rule by his goodness over all that he has made for his glory. And spoiler, the way in which we rule should look and feel a lot like the person of Jesus. A ruler who came not to wield power and control, but a ruler who willingly came to give up his life that others might live. And so on one hand, this passage gives us just the grit to to selflessly give of ourselves, to roll up our sleeves, to get our hands dirty in whatever God-glorifying labor has been entrusted to us. The Christian life is not a life of futility. It has meaning. It has purpose. All of what you do, as we consider 2024, all of what you do matters. Your life matters. You don't live under a bondage of death as if we only have the power to just like rearrange things that are just headed right to destruction. We actually have the power to create and to rule, to bear fruit for God's kingdom for all of eternity. The cross and the empty tomb have changed everything. We've been set free by our king to labor for him. So we see the gospel story gives the Christian meaning and purpose to live out. And lastly, secondly, the gospel story gives the Christian hope and comfort. Hope and comfort. As we navigate through every tear, every sorrow, every frustration of our fallen world, it's this gospel story that reminds us over and over again that though our every tear and our every sorrow is very real and very felt by us, that that is not the end of our story. There's coming a kingdom in fullness. We see in part, there's coming a kingdom of fullness to which Revelation described in Revelation chapter 21, right? A kingdom in which every evil is vanished. A kingdom in which God's absolute goodness will perfectly reign. A kingdom without any sorrow or frustration or death. A kingdom where God's people enjoy the fulfillment of their purpose and destiny. A kingdom in which everything, Hebrews tells us, everything is put in subjection to Jesus. We look at this passage and we have to realize that it's pure folly. 
It's pure folly to turn to anything of this present world to satisfy what it cannot possibly satisfy or fix. When the inevitable frustrations and sorrows and disappointments of this life pour into our lives, or when the frustrations and sorrows and disappointments are with us right now as we sit here today, as we feel that, we have to turn with eyes of faith to our Creator King and say, as the author of Hebrews says, I don't see it yet. Life is hard. I don't see it. But Jesus, I believe, I trust that you are actively at work of putting all things under your feet. When you're overwhelmed by guilt and despair by your sin, with eyes of faith, we turn to our Creator King and say, I don't see victory, but I'm turning to you with eyes of faith once more. You will put all things under your feet. When there's sickness in our family or just evil happening to the people we love, and that we have streams of sorrow and tears, we turn with eyes of faith to our Creator King and say, I don't see it, Jesus. I don't see it. But I believe, I believe you are putting all things under your feet. Nothing is outside of your control. There's reason to hope. There's cause for comfort. God's story is not yet finished and neither is yours. And contrary to what you or I might feel in our daily life, God isn't absent from us. He hasn't deserted us. He hasn't abandoned us. Actually, what the passage in Hebrews is making clear is the opposite. God's not absent. God is present. God is present with us, actively at work to bring this story, his story, to final and glorious completion. So we, we remember the context of this book as we put it into our own lives, that this is a church that's suffering, a church that's asking the question, is Jesus really worth following? Perhaps there's something better. So the author reminds that church then and us today that there's no one or no thing better than Jesus because Jesus is the only one to bring our story to a final and glorious end of reclaiming our life from the grave and restoring us to our joyous destiny and purpose God intended for humankind. Let's retell that story with beauty and let's live that story with joy. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you. That you have chosen, that you have chosen to put on our human flesh to meet our human need. That you have delivered us from our own willful and deliberate rebellion. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would marvel at your love, that we would marvel at your grace and compassion. And as we marvel, Lord, that we would be compelled to share this most beautiful and most true story to those around us as you give us opportunities. May we be bold and courageous to retell the story that all of us are longing to hear. 
Lord, I pray as we come into 2024 that we would be a people that freely and openly declare this story to those around us and that we would be a people that are marked by living this story out with joy and hope as we set our eyes on you, Jesus, our creator, king. We love you, we worship you, and we're thankful for this passage to remind us of the truths of what is true in you. And we pray, amen.